We're in the series Love Revolution, and we're going to be looking at the holiness regulations. It's one reason we sang that uh, fantastic threefold, holy, holy, holy. Uh, because when we come to the part of the Bible that talks about the second great command, Jesus said this was the second most important command, love your neighbor, uh, it's found for us in passage in a passage that may be a little obscure. I'm going to read uh, several of the verses of Leviticus 19, uh, but we see that Jesus said that all the law and the prophets are expressed in two commands, love God and love neighbor, and the rest is just details. <laughs> the rest of the Bible is just filling out. In other words, you could put two bins up here, and one could be the bin marked love God, this vertical relationship, and the other bin could be love neighbor, and you could take every single command in the Bible and you could put it in one of those two bins. It really is true. Everything fits in those two. It's the comprehensive. And what we're going to see this morning in this Leviticus 19 passage that begins with God saying, I, the Lord your God, am holy, is that the holiness of God, when we understand it and embody it, it you know, I don't know how you would feel if you, you were told, hey, a really holy person is going to move in next door to you. Um, but there was a, there was a poll taken that um, Americans said they did not want uh, a Christian believer to be their neighbor. <laughs> and I think because they, they feared maybe what the world sometimes hears when they hear that someone is holy, they feared a kind of sanctimonious, judgmental, isolation type individual uh, to come down heavy on them. And what this passage I'm going to read to you shows in Leviticus is that the holiness of God is always moving toward broken people like us. Uh, and the holiness of God is always moving toward us and it exposes that we have this barrier to relationship with God. Our, our continued sin and our, our failures, we get in the way and God in his holiness, and this is the theme of Leviticus, he is constantly making a way to have relationship with us. And when we embody that holiness, we also become a people who are making a way to not live isolated, uh, alone lives, but to live lives that connect with others. So I'm going to read you, you'll note the first verses about the holiness. Verse 18 is the one, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And just then I want to read you some of the other outworkings of this holy neighbor love. Uh, so hear the word of God from Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. 
Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. And do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 32 then. Stand up in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. And when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Let's pray together. Father, take these words and break them open to us in life-changing grace. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at how the two commands, love God and love neighbor, are inseparable. That's what we're going to look at at the first point. It's like if you could have a ticket, if you ever had a ticket that has a dotted line and it says void if detached. The love of God vertically that we're called to love him with our all is void, it's empty, it's really bogus if it's not somehow expressed in horizontal relationships. And that's what we see in the beauty of Leviticus is that the whole book is about God dwelling among his people and God creating a way for access. And it's, an, it's a holiness that God is seeking to tear down the obstacles so a whole nation of people can be a kingdom of priests to win the whole world. That's, that's the whole plot line. Uh, and so the legislation in Leviticus you know, is twofold. One, how to maintain this relationship with God through all our failures, our relapses, our fits and starts. That's all of us. Uh, and then it is on how to express that in a broken world. Uh, and the two commands, again, of loving God and loving people on the horizontal, visible way, uh, are inseparable in Leviticus and inseparable uh, in the Bible. And I was thinking of this show, I don't know if some of you have seen it called Intervention. It's a reality TV show. Some of you have seen that show? Uh, it's a deep show. It's not a lightweight show because it ends, uh, it, it follows the plot line of following someone who is addicted to a substance uh, or some kind of habit uh, or lifestyle that is wreaking havoc and destroying them. And so it, it kind of follows them around, and then in the end, it gathers together family members who are trying to awaken uh, love and concern and change the narrative for their loved one. I don't know if you've ever been involved in those kind of meetings. They require skill, so this uh, has a professional therapist and counselor is set up for uh, this woman who I think is called Julie. Uh, and the show follows her around, and it gets to the end of the show where they're going to have this intervention, and her father wants to rehearse his speech before the professionally trained therapist. And it's really fascinating, because the, the, the first thing the father says, he says, I'm going to tell my daughter, I'm going to say, daughter, I want you to know God loves you. He loves you so much. You cannot outrun the love of God. His forgiveness is real. He can give you a new start. And the therapist interrupts him and says, mm, she doesn't need to hear that. He says, that's, he says, that's all true. That's all true. But that won't do her any good right now. Because what she really needs to hear from you is that you love her. 
Now look, as a preacher, I'm going to never want to say that hearing about the love of God isn't what someone needs to hear, but here's what I think is true. And some of you, if you're honest, you probably have experienced it. You can't really hear the people who were telling you that God loves you because by their actions or their words or their omissions, you are not confident at all that they love you. What, what a broken picture that is. And I'm sure if, if we were to ask people in Chester County and around the area who were not church, that's what a lot of them would say. They could say, I can hear words from people, I can hear words from the church, but I can't really hear those words and with credibility because I'm not hearing the love of God from them for me. Oh, that's, that's so convicting right now. I think you all could just, we could just all close in prayer and go home and think of all the people <laughs> that we need to manifest the love of God horizontally with, right? So, so the therapist says, that's all true about God, but she needs to hear from you. And so then the father revises what he's going to say to Julie, his daughter. And he says to her, he says, Julie, I have not told you enough. And I need to tell you more. And I need to tell you now that I love you with all my heart. I love you so deeply. You mean the world to me. And she just starts to break and she just starts to cry. And it is a turning point in her healing. And I think, as I connect the dots as a preacher and, and as a romantic watching this, it's like, then the penny's got to drop. That then, having received love this way, she can hear the voice of God this way coming down to her soul. And you see, that's, that's the plot line of the Bible. That, that God's love is restless, but he wants to take us uh, into his love so that we both embody it and, and we showcase it to others. And so you'll see in this whole passage in Leviticus 19 that God wants a people who not only have a priesthood so we can go before God, our priest is Jesus, but once Jesus is your great high priest who takes you into the very presence of God, the New Testament tells us that we become priests. And we become priests who seek to connect people to God, but also to mend where they're broken and receive love horizontally. And the Bible says that we are a kingdom of priests, that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not only a priest, but you have a parish. And that parish includes the people who live around you, your, your neighbors, your worker, their co-workers, that they're all part of, every one of us is a priest with a parish, and we're called to express that love both vertically by praying for people, connecting them to God every way we can, but also expressing it horizontally so that they know the one who is speaking to them, us, as we tell them about Jesus, they know that we embody that. So that's the plot line of how the two commands are connected. And uh, again, it was Augustine who said, you know what, you don't even need the second one, love your neighbor, because if you were loving God, then you can really do whatever you want because you'll never be out of alignment with that love. If you love God, you will love neighbor. And this is the second point. The first point is how the two are connected horizontally and vertically. But the second is how it plays out to love our neighbor practically. And you'll note the, the legislation gets really practical. Everything from don't seek revenge to I think the most convicting command in Leviticus 19 is when he says, you're not even allowed to hate your neighbor in your heart. You mean I can't be fake nice to my neighbor? <laughs> you mean I can't harbor resentments, irritations, annoyances? And he says, no, you can't even, you're not even allowed to do that. This is the challenge that is to play itself out emotionally. It's to even play itself out with our resources. 
Uh, one of the curious commands, and I think Christian referenced this uh, in the sermon that had no tape last week. He, Christian did such an awesome job opening up the word, and then I was so disappointed I couldn't get the live cast, so he made a, another cast of it. But he talked about margins. And you know, we'll, you and I will never love people if we don't have margin in our life. And the margins come to us in, in the verses that talk about verses 9 and 10, where he says, do not, gl- do not harvest to the very edge of your field. And so there was actually legislation that if you, in that agrarian economy, that they were prohibited from going to the very edges of their fields and picking up all of the grain. They were to leave it so that others uh, could come and participate in the richness of the harvest. And this is an image of God's plan. He says that when I'm your Lord, you're, you're no longer called to live out to the very edges of your life. It means you can't consume all the resources you have on yourself. This is such a challenge. In our contemporary culture, do you know that uh, most Americans not only live on 100% of what we take in, but we live on 110% of what we take in. It's called credit card debt. Uh, and I'm not saying this in condemnation. I'm saying we live in this culture. If you're in that situation where, where the average American has $5,000 credit card debt, <laughs> And so we spend everything we make on ourselves and we go into hock for even more because I haven't yet satisfied enough of me yet. And God has such a, a powerful rejoinder to that that um, we are to set aside a proportion of what we have. In the Bible, set aside a proportion of your income, set aside a proportion of your time with the days of rest and feasting and Sabbath and gathering so that we aren't just consuming everything that we have. For some of us, our most precious resource, the reality is not just some of us, all of us, our most precious resource is time. (laughs) You could conceivably lose everything you have and make more money than you had, you know, through some series of events, but you will never make more time than you have. And time, time to say, I'm going to invest, I'm going to invest, I think of investing in students, uh, investing in children, I mean, the currency of ministry in any church is not just setting up programs, but it's the population of those programs by people who say, I want to invest in other people. Uh, That's how we love one another. It's it's by setting up that investment. Um, You know the writer C.S. Lewis, uh, his friends, he was a pretty private person, and uh, his friends noticed that he got very anxious around payday every week every two weeks, I think. And they thought, you know, what's wrong? Because he lived uh, with a higher income than most people. He uh, was a Cambridge University professor and his books were popular, making a lot of royalties. So they were kind of puzzled at this. Why does he get so anxious about payday? But then when when he died, it was revealed to everybody that C.S. Lewis lived on only one-third of his income He gave two-thirds of his income away to orphans and widows and the poor and other people because he early had a conviction that just because his income went up when he became a popular author and a speaker and apologist, it didn't mean that he was going to take that increase of income and spend it on himself. And so he drew a line, and it was a line of love that he spent his resources on others. This, This is what Leviticus 19 is saying. 
Make sure there's something left over. And I just want to tell you right now, as you're a commuting pastor with a daughter getting married, uh, a shower with 50 people coming, getting ready to sell a house today uh, or this week, uh, and then find a house down here, I am the biggest hypocrite in the world right now when I'm talking to you about margin. <laughs> I got no time. I'm ready for like, you know, all of it to come to me. How, who's going to help me with this and that? I mean, it is, it is such a time. But, but it's true. We will never be loving if we, if we don't reserve some margin and say, this is not for me. And I would just say the greatest thing you really could do for yourself is set aside those margins and say, this is not just for me to be on the take. This is for me as someone who's received the love of God to want to disperse it, to want to, want to give it out. Then he talks about business dealings and being just and giving workers their wages. And I want to tell you, it was some meditation on these verses and some verses in James uh, about um, not paying well that really convicted me at a time when we were having some people work on our house. And um, I think we, were, we hadn't yet hired them. We were getting bids to do some projects. And what did I want to do by instinct? I wanted to get the lowest bid possible. And it came into a collision course with this because I said, that's not really even a living wage for that skill. You know, I mean, uh, everything from like, I want, I want the cheapest dry cleaning. Yeah, I want the cheapest this. I want the cheapest that. But it's like, but what about the person doing that? How does that play out? And so he talks about um, being just and being generous even with your disbursements. That, the, you know, the, the, our narrative is not that I've got to get the greatest sales price. It's got to be that I, I love what uh, the seven habits of highly effective people says. He says, in every situation, we ought to look for the win-win. <laughs> the win for the people who are working for us. The win for the people who we're doing business with. And also a value for us so that it comes together. That's love. That's this, this other generated love. And I just want you to see the connection between God saying, this is what it means when God says, I am holy and my holiness is concerned about the goodness for every single person on the planet. Um, then Leviticus, and these are really interesting verses in verse 14. He says, uh, out of this being holy and having a regard for our neighbor, he says, you shall not curse the deaf and you shall not put a stumbling block in the place of the blind, but fear me. And that's such powerful legislation because it's speaking to something that we might say is even a quote kind of victimless crime. It's kind of picturing a situation where uh, maybe there's a few people gathered or maybe you're just, just uh, with a group of friends you want to impress and uh, a deaf person passes and you just call out ridiculous names to them. And they're not going to hear it. They're not going to know you did that. But God is. And God says, that person matters to me. And even though it's not going to hit the, in the arena of their ears, and the, and the other picture is do not put a stumbling block in the place of the blind. Somebody's walking through maybe with, with one of those sticks and they cannot see, and so uh, somebody just pretends, like, a, you know, stick their leg out, trip them up or whatever. God says, don't do that. That person is an image bearer. That person is precious to me. They are not to be discarded or mocked, even if they never find out about it. It's this principle even of, I would say this would apply to saying we should never talk about someone in a way that we would not talk about them if they were not in the very room because God is in the room. 
Ah, oh, that, that makes us all need the Lord's Supper for guilt right away, right now. If you've got any imagination about your conversations this week. And, and, and so all this legislation is saying this, this command to love your neighbor plays out practically in so many countercultural ways. Every single one of these ways is contrary to how the culture teaches us that we've got to seek the win for ourselves. We've got to get the advantage for ourselves. And he even strikes at the, at the heart of something that um, some scholars, Hebrew scholars, who are familiar with all the ancient Near Eastern tribes, they say this command in Leviticus 19 does more to prove the supernatural origin of these laws than any other command. And, you know, and it, because he said this command doesn't exist anywhere else. Some of these other commands you might find in uh, other ethical systems and other teachers, or we can listen to them and just say that makes sense that looks like that would serve the common welfare but this command uh, in verses 33 and 34 he says if a refugee if an alien from another country uh, has sought refuge in your country he says you've got to treat them the same way you would treat them uh, if they were of your own nation and they just say no other tribe every other tribe's legislation was tribal other people say yeah we love people like us we love people on our team we love people with our nationality um, but God says, God does something here that is amazing. He gives them a universal concern for people from all other nations because that's the heart of this God who has set up residence in Israel, but his heart is throbbing because he wants to reconcile people from every tribe and tongue and nation and group because we're not ultimately really different races. We're part of one human race that Jesus came to embody and to give his blood for. And so he's saying, I want you to be a place that so encompasses that diversity and embraces it and treats each other with such selfless regard for the dignity of each person's life um, that you're different. A verse that I think is going to mean more and more to me is verse 32. It talks about rising up in the place of the elderly and treating them with honor. I'm going to make sure all of my children and people know that verse in, in increasing measure in the years to come. But, it, but it's saying there is, there is a place of honor after someone maybe has made their fullest contributions and maybe, and I think it certainly entails us after maybe some of their memory and some of the aspects that even gave them their freedom and the way they showed the image of God to us are, are wiped out. That there's still this place of honor and reverence. And, and you just see, uh, I hope what, what you see here is just like the holiness of God it doesn't make him a crank or a curmudgeon up in the sky who's, who's lashing out, but it rather makes him this God who in his holiness is seeking to right the world and to have the world filled with holiness. I'll tell you, your world filled with holiness, my world filled with holiness is the most beautiful possible world that we could ever live in. And it's that love and that, that kind of holiness emanating out from God that brings this command you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, some people have, have commented, well, this is three commands, love God, um, then love neighbor, and love self. And, and I would just say, there is a place for right and healthy emotional self-regard, but I don't think that's what the Bible refers to as self-love. I think here, Jesus is assuming we love ourselves generally pretty well. Um, and that he's saying, take that same goodwill that we easily express toward myself. It, it is 
It is no trouble for me to take care of myself. I don't need a reminder. I don't need to set an alarm on my phone. <laughs> I don't need to make a note or an appointment for that. I'm, I am, there is a driven part of me, and I believe it's in you as well, that we have immediate sense of goodwill and generosity. I, I can just tell you, I have gone to look for presents for other people in my family. I'm the worst gift buyer. And generally, if I'm in the right stores, I will always find stuff that I want. But I'll strike out for them. And, and, and so this command is saying, take the same creativity, the same force of energy that you have to serve yourself and, and display that toward others. And so in every way that we can intervene, in every way that we can substitute others' needs for our needs, uh, that is the fulfillment of this, this neighbor love command. It is really putting others in the driver's seat of goodwill and priority. Um, you'll hear a lot of stories from me about my grandfather. My grandfather was just like a remarkable human being, um, cleared 300 acres of farmland in Indiana that's still her farmland um, with the sweat of his brow and the strength of his back. And he would always brag that he had an eighth grade education because that was significant that he got through eighth grade. Um, and we always knew that when there was an eruption of selfishness among us four grandchildren, that we were prompting my grandfather to give the talk. And his, his talk always began saying, sounds like you folk need a spelling lesson. And we could be, you know, we could be 15, 17, or 21 when this would happen. Sounds like you need a spelling lesson. He said, have you ever learned how to spell the word others? It's O-T-H-E-R-S. And I loved it when he brought that out against my siblings, but I never really liked it when he brought that out against me. <laughs> but but this, is, this is really the legislation of God, that God's heart is always moving out toward others. God's heart is always moving out. In, and in the Trinity, the, the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son, the Spirit, and the Spirit takes of the Son and discloses to us. And the, the Godhead is inviting us into that dance of generosity, of love. That's the real love revolution. And so how do we get it? This is the final point. We've looked at how the two are connected. We've looked at how the commands, it's all in the details of others looking to others. But how do we get this love in our heart? And, and the first thing is really um, to see the image of God in others. This, this is really what Augustine, this is why he said, if you love God, you won't have any trouble loving others because you will see the imprint of God on others' face so that when even that annoying person comes to visit you or that, that person that you struggle with in life, you will see them as a messenger of God. That this is the amazing thing that Jesus taught when he said, whenever you've done it for the least of these, my brethren, right? He doesn't say, you know, thank you for serving them as an image bearer. He says, you've actually done it to me. Because he says that his image has invested itself in every human being. And, and while it's true, when we're loving God and when we're loving neighbor, we're showing off that image better. But there is no person on the planet who doesn't have ineradicably invested in them this imago Dei. Uh, and when we will see people that way, we will give them the right place. That, that there is a part of Christianity that ought, ought to say, yes, we're flawed, we're broken. We're not only broken, we're rebels. We rebel against God, and, and sin has infected us, but also God made us as human beings a little lower than the angels. That's us, that's human beings. And he crowned us with glory and honor, 
And, and he set all things under our feet. And we should, you know, this summer, I hope you go a lot of cool places and I hope you post your photos. And if I'm your friend on Facebook or Instagram, I, I, I love it when people share the beauties of things that they get to see. But do you know the most, the, the most awe-striking thing that we actually ever see? It's other human beings. It's other image bearers. Uh, of God, and, and we need to have that emblazed upon us. Um, we, we know how our affection moves that way. I know some of you are grandparents, and if I got you started, you could, without effort, talk about your grandkids forever because you see the image in their faces of the ones that you love, right? Um, in, in a lesser way, I was, I was once on the, the West Coast, and I saw some people with um, Eagles jerseys on, and I just wanted to run up and hug them. If it was Philadelphia, I would, it wouldn't have meant anything to me. <laughs> but it was just like, yeah, you are, we're on the same team. I see something I relate to. It just, it, it's something beautiful. And this is, this command, again, to love your neighbors, you love yourself. Jesus says the whole law and prophets hinge on that because it's part of loving God. And so all the other things are less. Um, if you get to know me very long, you'll soon know that I have this, I have what I call my therapy dog, although I haven't yet got the certificate, but he is the most attractive looking schnauzer. Yeah, that's him, Yadkin. Um, and he is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, now, um, I, he has like an imprint of a dove on his chest. It looks like he, the Holy Spirit. And he was born on Easter Sunday. This is the truth. He was born on Easter Sunday. And he is so smart, and you can say certain words, and we have to, he can even spell. If we start to spell the word squirrel, SQ, he's off. Like, he's off. He's amazing. And um, it is pretty effortless for me to love this dog. In fact, uh, one way you can tell my car, this is the license plate on my car and a little bumper sticker that we put up, uh, is that, and I, I think my schnauzer really is smarter than a lot of people's honor students. And um, I put that up, you know, it's a little cheeky, but in Doylestown, everybody's kids are honor students. It sounds like we've got a really fantastic group of, you know, aspiring academics here as well. But so I just thought, yeah, I'll just level the field. But you know, I, I love my dog. I really do. Um, and he is, he's, a, he's like me. He's, he's pretty affectionate. He likes to eat. Uh, he knows when mealtime is. He loves the out of doors. We share all those things in common. But here's a couple things about him that are not something that he shares with you and I. Um, he's not wrestling at all with who God is. Um, he doesn't pray. I really, I know I'd like to think he does, but I don't think he prays. He's not wondering about what happens after he dies. He doesn't possess the moral, spiritual capacity to, after he's stolen my hat or shoes and taken them into the yard to prevent me from leaving, to feel guilty about it the next day or remember it. He, he doesn't really have the faculty of, the, of, that, kind of that kind of conscience. And his, his place in the natural order is just different than mine. I mean, yeah, someday I might make an Instagram page just for him. And you can come and, and see how awesome he is. But his place in the natural order is different than mine. Uh, and, uh, but, but here's one of the beautiful things that I see in the Bible about him is that by me exercising loving stewardship and dominion over him, a loving dominion, as God said, take dominion over the animals, right, in, in Genesis, and training him, 
uh, and causing him to be just a model schnauzer, it doesn't make him bear the image of God, but it helps me bear the image of God. Um, In all the things that we are given to take dominion of, that God has given us, even your backyard, your garden, your home, um, your craft, your skills, whether it's music or math or engineering, there are all ways, as you take dominion and you use those things in, in powerful, upbuilding things, there are all ways of showcasing the image of God. And we're called to take dominion over the earth as a, as a caretaker, as a steward, not to deal with it roughly, but to deal with the earth and, and to treasure it. But you know what we're never called to take dominion on over in, in Genesis? It never occurs once. We're never called to take dominion over each other. I, I, I'm so, I was so struck by that. Because we are all called to live under God. We're not called to be dominated by another person. There's so much of that in our world, right? We think of, of, of what Putin's aims are on the Ukraine, and, and we see the distortion of it. But, but I just want to say, like, emotionally or in a possessive way, or in a way that may be far, far more subtle, we're not called to take dominion over each other, but we're called to, to unleash in other people their creative potential. You may have heard this quote from C.S. Lewis before, but he says, he says, I think it's hardly possible for us to think too often of the glory that may belong to our neighbor. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to one day may be a creature that if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. And then he writes this. He says, all day long, this is going to be true of you all day long. When you're at the cashier, do you talk to the cashier at Giant? Do you smile? Do you engage? Or do you just take your stuff? He says, all day long, you or and I are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, never. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Oh, let's, let's go live that out. Let's live that out in Chester County. And God backs up. God is, he's invested so much for the flourishing of us as image bearers. And when we understand what he's done for us in Christ, even going to the cross so that all of us who are tempted to sometimes despise our neighbor in our hearts and we can't overcome and we get in the way of the things that block our own love for other people. Jesus did it all and he's invested in so much because he wants us to flourish and he wants us to flourish in helping other people flourish. And I, and I want to close with a, a story I heard about an 11-year-old boy named Phil Mick. This boy was in fifth grade, closing his fifth grade year and he, his mother got a report that he was being bullied. So um, she did an unwise thing, I think. She posted it on Facebook, because he had bruises on his body, pictures of his bruises, and said, my son is being bullied at such and such elementary school. And lo and behold, one of her friends was in a motorcycle gang and called him, uh, I like to think it was like a Michael Ehrman Trout figure from Breaking Bad, and said, hey, you want me to take care of this? 
And she thought for a moment, you know, do I want this motorcycle gang member to take care of my 11-year-old being bullied? And she said what any mother would say. She said, yes, please do. Uh, and so um, school had ended for fifth grade, so they decided to make a big uh, deal out of the first day of sixth grade. And this motorcycle gang friend posted on social media that he needed some help. They were going to meet at 6.30 for breakfast before school started. And he got about 45 of his motorcycle riding friends with their, you know, leather jackets or their big, you know, biceps tattooed uh, all together. And they were going to meet with Phil Mick and they were going to give him an escort that he would never forget. And by the way, they arranged all this with the principal of the school and they got approval for all of this. Uh, and they showed up in force. And that boy had the opening day of sixth grade of, of a lifetime. And basically they made clear, they said, this young man who's been bullied and mistreated, he has the backing of all these motorcycle riding dudes. And they said it rocked this young man's world. It rocked his kind of self-esteem. It rocked everything about the trajectory of his life because he knew that he lived under that kind of investment and protection. Uh, I'm going to tell you, the Bible says God has invested that in us. That's why it says to despise the poor, the poorest person on the planet, is to show contempt for the maker because he has invested his image in that person. And this is why Jesus, um, why Jesus gave it all so that the image of God could not only be honored we're all broken image bearers, but we're broken, capable of restoration through the cross. And so I'm going to invite you first to receive this news that you are an image bearer that God is invested in, but you are an image bearer who God also wants to be part of the storyline of investing in a holiness that invested in others. The commandments are inseparable, the commandments are practical, uh, and the commandment calls us to see the image of God in ourselves and others restored by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the God that you are. We sang it earlier, our God is love. Your holiness is a holiness that reaches out. And Father, we pray that you would align our hearts and lives. We come to you asking you would forgive us, Lord, where we have consumed all that we have upon ourselves, even our thoughts and anxieties wrapped up in ourselves. Lord, we turn from that. We turn, Lord, from any distance that we have rationalized and reinforced toward other people. And we ask, God, that you would, you would renew in us a view of others as sacred, sacred image bearers. Lord, would you allow us to live in a way that takes people's breaths away with the beauty of what we believe, even as we talk to them about the reality of what we believe. Lord, we pray, even as we're going to sing now, that you would give us your heart and help us to show that forth as we seek to live this kind of life in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Please stand and sing with us. Your eyes are on the lowly, the lovers look away. Your feet run to the broken, your hands are quick to save. Make us like you, Lord. You walk with the forgotten and offer them a home, adopting the unwanted and calling them your own. Make us like you, Lord. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. Let the light of heaven shine as we step into the dark. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, to see your kingdom come and death depart. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. You walk with the forgotten and offer them a home. A Justice flow like a river in the 
so good that we take the God we've experienced here and we walk with him out in the world we live in. And that's what this benediction is really crafted to remind us. We carry the presence uh, and the reality of God with us. So this week, as you walk with him, how many people are you embracing and telling you love them? That's image bearing. Do it today. Do it each day this week. And lift up your heart for the strength of where all this comes from. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and communion of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Oh, give us your heart. Oh, give